This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com national editor Matt Myers. We've got a lot to talk about today. Matt Carpenter bunted for a double last night. There is actually data on this. We're going to get into it for a second. Uh, there's a reason you might need to trade for Howie Kendrick. We're going to go through the bizarre season of Jay Bruce. Matt wants to figure out if Shohei Otani should ever, ever pitch again. Uh, we have to get into two of our binkies here. Jackie Bradley is back. Luis Perdomo may be back. And hey, we introduced a new StatCast metric last week. It's called Jump. It's for outfielders. It's got to do with range and route running. It's pretty cool. But first, Matt Carpenter bunted for a double last night. I don't know if you saw it. It was against Miami, and it was pretty cool. Carpenter gets shifted on all the time. Nobody down the third baseline. He bunts a ball perfectly down the line. The pitcher had to go collect it. Carpenter went for a double. Now, Matt, you can imagine what the reaction was from, let's say, old school baseball people at seeing a left-handed hitter with a wide-open left side of the infield not only bunt, but bunt for a double. The reaction was, why doesn't everybody do that all the time? I assume you know the answer as to why everybody doesn't do that all the time. It's hard. It's hard. Yeah. It's so hard. It's really hard to do. Now, it was really cool. Like, I enjoyed it. It was a very cool and fun baseball moment. Now, do you know what happened the next time he came up in that game? They still shifted they him. They still shifted him. That's the entire point here. Doing it once is not going to change anything. I don't know how many times in a row you'd have to do it to make them stop shifting you? The answer might be never, because now you are not trying to hit for power at all, and that might be a big win for them as well. But you are absolutely correct. The answer is, it's hard, and he still got shifted. Now, I thought this was funny. I wanted to go see, because people are like, oh, it's easy, blah, blah, blah. I do it in my softball league, whatever. Is it possible to find previous examples of guys hitting for uh, bunt doubles? And I went back through the StatCast era. So the last four and a half seasons, starting in 2015, I found only three bunt doubles. One of them was Matt Carpenter last night. One of them was last September. Uh, Orlando RC of, of Milwaukee bunted one down the first baseline. It's actually a really cool play. Got right past the first baseman. He's fast. He made it to second. The only other example was in July of 2015, where Alcides Escobar, and this was a blooper reel here, has a really bad bunt. It's like a pop-up right in front of the mound. The pitcher dives off the mound, tries to get his glove on, ends up kind of kicking it towards the dugout, turned into a double. Now, here's the magic of Twitter. I tweeted about this. That pitcher, his name was Everett Tiford. He replied to me because he saw me tweeting about it. And what he said was, is it a blooper reel or is it four inches from a sports center top 10 play? <laughs> Which I appreciate. Uh, as it turns out, I looked up uh, Everett Tiford pitched in both games of the doubleheader that day, his final day in the major leagues. Well, then, Everett Tiford, Everett <laughs> back from, I think, from my Baseball America days when I was doing the Royals top 30 prospects, he was like, a random guy who like was like brought up like hey like you should keep an eye on this guy i don't even know if he ended up in the top 30 in 2006 apparently that was the year he was drafted um but uh, that name always always stuck with me he works in uh player development for the chicago white Sox now and just based on a brief twitter interaction seems like a pretty cool guy but i thought that was hilarious once i dug speaking of crazy uh alignments did you see the alignment that the uh 
Rays had on Glaber Torres last night? I did not, but now I want to know. They went with like they went with the the four man outfield with the shortstop and third baseman shifted way over to the um, way over to towards third and the first baseman. Here, I'll I'll, I'll show you. Can't viewers can't see it? I'll tweet it out if you're interested. This is what they had going. It looked like when That's you're pulling weird. pick a baseball as a kid and you don't quite have enough players, so you kind of have to just like be rover positions. Yeah, like they panned out from behind home plate and it was like, wait, what's going on? Um, and of course, what it, Torres we struck out. He did not try and hit a ground ball up the middle that would have been an easy single. He tried to hit a home run and he struck out. The next plate appearance for Matt Carpenter, he hit a ground ball right into the shift. Turned out to be an infield hit. But anyway, I like weird baseball. We are getting close to trade season, I guess. Right? It's June eighteenth. We're about six weeks or so from the deadline, from the only deadline this year. There is no longer an August trade season. And some teams are going to have to decide if they're in or out. And one of those teams, I'm guessing, is going to have to be the Washington Nationals, who are, I think, when I looked it up yesterday, maybe ahead of only three teams in the wild card race. It's like the Giants, the Marlins, and uh, the Pirates, maybe. Like that's it hasn't been a great season uh, for the Washington Nationals. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, which is surprising because if someone had told you on opening day that you know. Howie Kendrick was had like an OPS of a thousand. You'd be like, "Wow, the Nets are going to be having a great season." <laughs> Howie Kendrick is about to be thirty six years old, and as I kind of wrote about today, when you talk about a guy who's having a breakout season, it's sort of you know you hit the same beats, right? He's hitting the ball harder, he's hitting fewer grounders, he's putting it in the air, he's pulling it, and that's true. Uh, but most of the time, you don't see it for a guy who's already in his fourteenth big league season. I mean, Howie Kendrick spent like a decade as a steady, reliable contact hitting ish second baseman for the Angels, and then he's kind of bounced around the Dodgers, the Phillies, the Nationals, and now here he is uh, for the Nationals after, by the way, blowing out his Achilles tendon last year. It seemed like a career-ending injury to me, but he came back. 333-382-602, uh, and only like 190 plate appearances, so fine. But that is uh, those are massive numbers. That is the 14th best line among 205 players with at least 190 plate appearances. Like that's huge. And if you look at the numbers, uh, he's hitting all the beats, right? Like he is striking out less. He's got a career low 13 and a half strikeout rate. That's one of the 25 lowest in Major League Baseball. Look at the leaders for hard hit rate. Number one, Anthony Rendon. Okay, two, fine. Uh, then Marcelo Zuna, Cody Bellinger, Jose Breu, Shinsu Chu, and Howie Kendrick, of all people. At number six, now minimum 150 batted balls. If you're wondering where Joey Gallo is, where Aaron Judge is, they got hurt, uh, et cetera. When he played with the Grounders, he was like an Eric Hosmer-esque. When he played with the Angels, excuse me, he was like an Eric Hosmer-esque ground ball hitter, right? Like in his time with the Angels, he had one of the 20 highest grounder rates among qualified hitters. Uh, between 2015 and 2017, it was the second highest or second lowest launch angle. He has dropped that by almost 10 full points. Over the last two years, this isn't an accident. Yeah, he he was he was a guy. You know, when he was coming up, he was a huge prospect. But he was like one of the last of like the true sort of like uh, hit for a high average guys. He was like he kind of had the Jose Altuve was the Jose Altuve profile. He was a guy who was like hitting three forty in the minors. It was like, oh, this is a guy who's gonna quote unquote win batting right. titles without the speed. <laughs> yeah, um, and that's the player that he always has kind of been. Just a guy who like hits for a decent average with a little bit of pop, but was never kind of the the star that he looked like he might be in a couple of years that, you know, where the, the Babbitt went his way a little bit where he hit, you know, 310. I was like, Oh, this guy's a pretty good player, but there was never really any power to speak of. He is slugging 602. He's slugging higher than Pete Alonzo and Freddie Freeman. Unless you think that this is a small sample size fluke, his expected slugging based on exit velocity and launch angle is 629. I looked it up. He got robbed by uh, Lewis Brinson and Starling Marte both robbed him of like pretty solid hits to dead center field. Overall, over the last three years, 
Howie Kendrick is hitting 317, 364, 510. That is the 39th best line of over 330 players. I mean, it's tempting to say, oh, a small sample thing, but it's kind of not. Like, he, he, from what I can tell, uh, doesn't, you know, isn't, isn't like the most quotable guy in the world. You know, so I, I just can't find anything interesting of him saying, oh, I went to this swing coach. I'm doing this. It seems like this can't possibly be an accident, but it's so rare to see a guy doing this so late in his career uh, with no on the record indicator of him doing something but he is like and it seems real all the indicators are real he's playing first second and third and so it just seems to me like we're going to be talking about i don't know madison bumgarner and whoever else is going to get traded in the next couple weeks howie kendrick is kind of the guy i want it feels like every world series winner needs to have a guy like this on the bench who can hit and play a couple spots he's he's i mean he he fits on every team um you even could i mean he played some outfield last year. No. You, could even, you could even fake in the outfield yeah. if you had to. No, but, but that the, was it. He got hurt in the outfield. He never played it again. That's true. But point being, he can play first, second, or third. He can hit. He's used to playing a reserve role, so it's not like he's a guy you have to worry about, like, oh, you know, how's he going to take to being a part-time player? Yeah. Um, based on the way, you know, modern lineups are built with, you know, players getting cycled in and out every game, like, he, 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 he should be on – any number of these contenders and you have a list of, of good yeah I, pretty much i think everybody except for the yankees because they've kind of got and their probably own. the dodgers well yeah i mean the yankees have dj lemayhu who's you know sort of a similar multi-positional contact hitter profile yeah i don't know where the dodgers would possibly fit <laughs> like another bat um a couple of, of teams i came up with here the red Sox. um i looked at right-handed hitters combined playing first second and third the red Sox are the worst in baseball, 250, or 283 on base, 358 slugging. I hadn't realized Eduardo Nunez has a 237 on base. That's bad. It's not what you want. So he'd be a great fit there. Uh, the Brewers, they could really use another bad. Jesus Aguiar has only five home runs. He's got a 327 slugging. Uh, and, you know, even though Eric uh, Eric Thames is hitting well, he can't hit lefties. And uh, I'm not sure Travis Shaw can hit it all, so that would be a good spot. The Rays were potentially in, uh, as, as Mark Feinstein reported, on Edwin Encarnacion before he went to the Yankees. Uh, makes sense because Choi and Lowe were both you know, big platoon split guys. I could see the Astros. Tyler White's not very good. Yuli Gurriel's not very good. No team is getting less from their bench than the Astros, which was kind of shocking to me. Uh, and the Cubs. Addison Russell and Daniel Descalso, neither of whom have been very good. Like, we, might not see, we might not see Ben Zobris this year. Exactly. Right. So it's... Uh... If the if the you I mean the Nats have been a stubborn team, you know last year they they refused to trade Bryce Harper, um, and they probably should have uh, when all was said and done because that would not have precluded them from re-signing him if they wanted to. Um, there's gonna be the talks gonna be a lot of talk about Rendon because he could be one of the big names in the trade market, but uh, Kendrick seems like a guy. If the Nats do decide to sell, there will be a lot of interest in him. And one guy has already been traded, and that is Jay Bruce who has been traded, I think, now four times in the last three years. All right, right? Because he was Cincinnati to the Mets to Cleveland. And- Let's see, he went Cincinnati to the Mets, then played a year, basically like a calendar year with the Mets. Went to Cleveland, signed back with the Mets, got traded to Seattle, now got traded to Yeah, Florida. exactly. Anyway, he's been around after more than a decade uh, with the Reds, and he is off to a very good start for the Phillies. I think he actually won player of the week his first week with the Phillies. Like He, he got acquired... Um, maybe like, I don't know, 12 hours before Andrew McCutcheon uh, got injured. And obviously Herrera is suspended, and we don't expect to see him anytime soon. With the Phillies, uh, in 41 plate appearances, he's slugging 744. So that'll play. But what I found interesting about him was actually two things. One is he is hitting, listen to this line, a 230 batting average, 293 on base, 574 slugging. Uh, That 230 batting average is 138th best but the 574 slugging is 11th best. So overall, he's been a pretty valuable player. 
And you know, if you listen to this show, I don't care about batting average. However, uh, I thought it was kind of a fun comment. I care a little about batting average, so Mike and I differ on and that. And Matt's wrong, and, <laughs> and he knows that. But uh, I thought it was a fun combination of a guy having a, a good season and a low batting average, right? So if we look, for example, at OPS Plus, where 100 is league average, he's got a 128 OPS Plus right now and a 230 batting average. It's kind of hard to actually do that. So I went and I looked up all qualified seasons in baseball history with an OPS of at least 128 with... Uh, assorted by lowest batting average it's really hard to do this the only guys who've really done this are uh, like carlos pena you know back in 2009 uh, had a 133 ops hit 227 gene tennis back in the day in the 70s did this a couple times Uh, someone named pat siri who i've legitimately never heard of for the mid 40s cleveland indians did it uh, and that's it it, it's kind of hard to be this productive while having this low of a batting average, which I like because then I get to say a guy hitting 230 has actually been a good hitter this year, which riles people up. So I think that's fun. The other thing that I thought was interesting about Jay Bruce, no one in baseball has added more sprint speed. Last year, he was at 25.5 feet per second. This year, he's up to 26.8. That is a gain of plus 1.3. Remember, 27 is league average. And that's cool because we talked about this a lot last year with Matt Kemp. And, you know, Matt Kemp got off to a great first half and kind of struggled down the stretch. Uh, if you look back at Jay Bruce last year, remember, had a pretty dreadful season, but it was all about injuries. Last year, he missed time early in the season uh, with some plantar fasciitis in his foot. He missed some time with some back discomfort in June and then missed more than two months with a hip injury. Shockingly, a guy with problems of his hip, foot, and back was slow. He was the slowest of 61 qualified right fielders. He was number 61. And overall, he was in the 23rd percentile of speed. Remember, that's compared to everybody, including catchers, DHs. Now, this year, he's back up to basically just about straight-up average. Uh, it's, I don't care if he's fast. I care if he's healthy. Yeah, he's had such a weird last few years of his career because in 2016, he had a great first half with uh, the Reds. Yeah. And was a hot name with the deadline. The Mets traded for him. He was awful. basically awful for two months. <laughs> like, he, he, he has said he was just uncomfortable living at a hotel, which I get. He, ba- he basically was like almost cost the Mets a wild-card spot that year. Came out guns blazing in 2017, was awesome for the first part of the year, then got traded to the Indians, was part of that uh, 20-game hit, a, a walk-off hit in the midst of that 20-game he, he, he said He said he arrived, they lost his first game, and then didn't lose again for like three weeks. Um, and then was, I can't even remember, then he was hurt last year. Just like, it's, there's been all sorts of extremes in the last few years of Jay Bruce's career. Um, and now he actually just, he... Hurt his hamstring again the other day. On Saturday. So he hasn't actually played. He hasn't played, but he's not going on the IL. be interesting to see how that affects him. But he's been uh, – the the Phillies basically got him for free. The the Mariners basically gave gave him – didn't even ask for like a big prospect back, and they're paying most of his salary. Uh, Came in handy, obviously, with with, with Kutch going down, as you mentioned. A really interesting pickup. Uh, And uh, the speed thing's fascinating because it's like a great indicator of health. Yeah. Uh, You look at some of the other guys on the the list here, like George Springer – you know, before he got hurt, he talked about wanting to drop weight and add speed, which he did. Like, you can kind of see it here. We went through this all last year, which I thought was pretty fascinating. Uh, Jay Bruce, hard hit rate up from 34% to 43%. And only Jorge Polanco has a lower ground ball rate. Hit the ball hard and hit it in the air. I feel like we said that once or twice or, I don't know, 700 times. You mean Jorge Polanco, the guy who finished second in our uh, our mock MVP vote today? Did you really? Yes. I didn't see that. But yeah. Trout was first, right? yes. and Polanco was second. Yeah, exactly. What a weird time to be alive. One of the only two people the only two people got first place votes in the AL. Trout. Mike Trout and Jorge Blanco. <laughs> I guess I have to be a little more inventive next time. Yeah, exactly. Um, Shohei Otani. I'm going to kind of kick my feet up here and let Matt spout some hot takes. Although I think I wrote about these hot takes like a year ago. Exactly. Mike was ahead of his time. He actually wrote about this in September when, when um, Otani went down – 
and it was it was reported it was announced he was going to have Tommy John surgery and that he wasn't going to pitch in 2019, but that would come back and hit. And Mike wrote a piece, sort of breaking down the various options, like what is going to happen with Otani in. 2020 and basically Otani came back about a month ago started out a little slow in DH role but in June has been scorching the ball um hitting 328 385 724 um for his career now in 523 plate appearances now basically a full season he has a 284 358 550 line so he's basically proving to be an elite hitter and I will admit I was 100% wrong on this. If you go back and listen to episodes of this podcast from the spring of 2018, we were talking about Otani as a two-way player. I'm sure I was on here spouting hot takes about how Otani wouldn't be hitting past June because his strikeout rate in Japan was so high that that was a huge red flag because the strikeout rate in Japan is much lower. And the fact that he was striking out that much in Japan indicated that he was going to strike out in an unplayable amount in the majors. Do, Do you remember who we comped him to at the time? I do. And I'm trying to just stall so I can look up the numbers. and Because the other guy we comped him to is having an all-star caliber season. Um, Joey Gallo? No, no <laughs> not Joey Gallo. Okay, this is great. Oh, this actually, this is working out in real time exactly the way I wanted it to. Shohei Otani, and I'm just using OPS Plus because it's what I can get to quickly here, has a 130 OPS Plus. The guy we comped him to has a 130 OPS Plus. It's Jock Peterson. Wow. Which is amazing. Oh, <laughs> I like is, that so much. <laughs> that, is, that is awesome. So anyway, my point is basically this. Right now, Otani, and last year he was great um, as a hitter. Um, and this year he is, it's not a fluke. He's 98th in percentile in exit velocity, 88th percentile in hard hit rate, 80th in expected weight on base. He is a top-of-the-line hitter. As a pitcher last year, he was exciting, occasionally dominant, but he was more very good than great. 331 ERA. 357 fielding independent pitching, also known as FIP, which tries to estimate uh, a pitcher's ERA based on things he can control, uh, strikeouts, walks, and home runs. And that was in 51.2 innings pitched. He made 10 starts. One of them was in a bridge start where he basically where he tried – one was in a bridge start where he got hurt, and then one was in a bridge start where he came back and pitched once in September. So it was really just like eight starts. Um, Ten starts, uh, pitched into the eighth inning once, the seventh inning twice. He had five quality starts. But the problem is that he was only pitching once a week. So if you're pitching once a week, you want a guy who's going to give you length regularly. Otherwise, it's really going to mess with your bullpen and cause other issues. So he's not going to be able to do that next year coming off TJ's surgery. In fact, it's unclear if he's ever going to be able to do that. Remember, he had ankle an ankle injury in 2017 in Japan. He p- barely pitched in 2017. He, is, he, will, he will enter 2020 having thrown a total of 77 innings over three seasons. And as Mike wrote last year, he said, in May, for example, the Angels played 29 games. This is last May. Here's how his month broke down. He was a starting pitcher four times, a DH 15 times, a pinch hitter two times, did not play eight times. That's a lot of games to miss for maybe the best hitter on the team, maybe one of the top 10 hitters in the league. If he's not pitching next year, then presumably that opens up uh, some availability for him to not just DH too. Right? Maybe you could play the outfield. I think you would, you, you, you would sort of, in this scenario, you'd have to like make him play the outfield. And with you see the guys who play outfield nowadays to get them in. The, this guy has above average sprint speed and a there, cannon. Clearly, and a cannon. There's no reason to think he couldn't be at least an average outfield. He played a little in Japan, but it was years ago, so he'd probably need to relearn. Um, obviously, part of the reason he signed with the Angels is because there was a team that said they would let him pitch and hit. So I'm not saying like this is going to happen or it's going to happen easily. But to me, the signs, and the, the, I, I will admit the, the idea first came to me from the um, 
Joe Sheehan newsletter. And I've been thinking about it a lot the last couple of days, especially again after he hit another opposite field home run last night in Toronto. Um, he is really proving himself to be a top of the line hitter. And I think that there's just like so many other problems that arise with him pitching, straight up stress on the bullpen, keeping his elite bat out of the lineup. That this conversation, I think, is it's, if he continues to hit like this, and there's no reason to think he's not going to, considering he's been doing this now for two seasons the Angels are going to have some tough decisions to make. So you make compelling points, and I, I think that makes sense. I can't remember exactly what I wrote last year, but I, I think the idea was that if he was more likely to be a high-quality hitter, that's more valuable than the risk of being a pitcher. My only question is this. Can the Angels possibly afford to not pitch a guy who can pitch well? Because you'll get their starting staff, right? Like Harvey's been a disaster. Cahill's hurt. You know, Skaggs, Heaney, been fine. Griffin Canning seems kind of nice. They are not you know, full of starting pitching depth here. That's that's the risk. No, there's no question. But the, the problem again is, is if he gets hurt again and he's had a hard time staying healthy pitching, um, he's not hitting for you either. You're getting nothing from him. And there's good reason to believe he's like maybe a five or six win player just as a hitter. And in a weird way, if, you, if he's not playing, you know, essentially in 40% of games because he's pitching and hitting, you might be kind of splitting the baby and end up with a four win player who's like a two win pitcher and a two win hitter. You think Pujols is back next year? Um, they finally go to St. Louis this week. This weekend, I've, yeah. I've, I've always assumed that that's what they were holding out for, although he's been a little bit better this year. Uh, I think that's a valid point. I think if he continues hitting like this, and I think you're right that he, uh, there's no reason to think he can't, it's something we're going to be talking about a lot all winter. Um, so, yeah, it, uh, one of the things you had discussed in your piece was whether or not maybe he could be an opener. Um, that's fun. Which is interesting. The problem is also next year, the other wrinkle is the new two-way player rule comes in. So like he can't Ooh. he like I forget the, I, I'm not I'm, I'm gonna botch this I looked this up earlier so I'm not, I should have I should have uh, taught myself better but like it's it's actually gonna be hard it's since he will they basically this year is a year for guys to get grandfathered in but he's not going to be able to reach either threshold this year because he's not pitching so he's basically going to have to start as a if he wants to pitch I think he has to start a designated I, as a pitcher yes. and get 20 innings and then he could be designated as a two way player but until then the the they, they don't get, essentially get the free roster spot. Uh, I feel like this isn't the last time we're going to be talking about this. No. Let's talk about some of our guys. Uh, one of my so far to date huge misses of the season was I spent a lot of time this winter talking about how Jackie Bradley Jr. was going to have a huge breakout season because Bradley has always had you know elite hard hit rates and he's had like these stretches where he's been red hot and then he started working with you know one of the hitting coaches. Has tried to try to elevate a little more, and he kept saying, "Oh, I, you know, I, I don't really feel like I ever knew what I was doing before. I was doing it the wrong way." And I was like, "Great, this is all great." Finished the season hot. Jackie Bradley on May nineteenth was hitting one forty four, two forty five, one seventy six. I'm pretty sure at some point in there, I tweeted out a list of the worst all time OPS seasons, and he was on it to that point. And so, uh, especially around the office, anyone who I told to draft him for their fantasy team has made sure to stop by my desk and make sure that I get to wear that. Which fine, all deserved. So I picked May 19th because that was the day he really bottomed out. Since then, since May 20th, in 104 plate appearances, Jackie Bradley Jr., 297, 385, 637. He was the third worst hitter in baseball by weighted on base before that date, one of whom Chris Owings has already gotten cut. And since then, he is the 24th best in terms of weighted on base. I don't want to say he's back, but I feel like he's back. And he does this a lot, right? You think about streaky hitters, like, that is number one on my list. It's like him, Yasmani Grandal, and Lucas Duda. Those are my... Jack my, Peterson. And that's the Mount Rushmore <laughs> of being super streaky. Uh, 
And it's pretty clear what's happening if you look at the numbers. And interestingly, it's not about hitting the ball harder. So I'm going to say, you know, this May 19th data is the before and after split point. Before, 41% hard hit and after, 41% hard hit. Here are some differences, though. Before, he was hitting the ball on the ground 59%. Now he's hitting the ball on the ground only 50%. Before, he was striking out 30% of the time. Now it's only 26% of the time. But perhaps most importantly, before, he was going uh, you know, somewhat equally pull center and opposite field. And now what he's doing is he's really changed that. He's hitting the ball to his pull field uh, a lot more, and he's hitting the ball opposite field less. If you uh, look at some of the quotes out there, you can see that he really feels like he made a change around then. So I kind of picked that date because that's when the stats said, hey, it got worse, right? Well, if you go back to uh, Alex Spear in the Boston Globe on May 30th, he quoted Jackie Bradley as saying, I really think that last Saturday in Houston, the work I put in that day to make the adjustment, ever since then I could tell a difference, right? So that was May 25th. Today in the Boston Globe, Pete Abraham talked to Alex Cora, who said he thought it started with an opposite field home run, his first of the season against Elvis Luciano on May 20th, right? And then they go into all this mechanical stuff. You know, here's a quote. He'd been struggling with the timing of the weight transfer in his swing, like all this stuff that guys always talk about, and it's generally really hard to see. Um, but since I'm super grasping at straws here for Bradley to come back and have a good season, I'm buying. I'm all in. This is going to work this time. Interestingly, that you mentioned the, the him pulling the ball more as the turning point, whereas Alex Cora says it was the opposite of your yeah, home run. Versus I may have actually had those numbers wrong, so don't put too much stock in that <laughs> part. Um, but anyway, it, it seems you know he's still hitting the ball hard. He is like the numbers are there, right? So he was he was a little underperforming before, right? Like he had a 203 weighted on base before, which is terrible, and he had a 279 expected weighted on base. So he's underperforming, but that's still really bad. Now he's got a 352 expected weighted on base. That is pretty well above average and you know 426 he's overperforming i'm not saying this is the guy uh but we've seen him do this up and down so many times over the years i'm ready for it i'm here i he's certainly better than what he showed the first uh couple of months the first month or so of the season that's for sure and the red sox have had such a weird year they started so slow they're back they're then they've, they've kind of been in a rut again recently but they're still uh uh 40 and 34 um they're probably not gonna win the al east this year but they're tied for second in the wild, wild card spot on paper, they're a better team than the other teams in the wild card. They're better than Texas. I mean, they're better than that's Texas who they're tied and Cleveland, basically. Right. The other teams are sort of in play for that yeah. one of the wild card spots. But it's going to be probably them versus the Rays in the wild card game. I would absolutely watch that. <laughs> <laughs> yes, because yes, otherwise you would not watch. Well, the wild you know, card you know game. what I mean, though, right? Like I would um, definitely watch. Point being, they've had such a weird year. He's been terrible. Chris Sale was terrible, but now he's back to being Chris Sale. They, just all sorts of stuff that's like weirdness going on with that. With that roster, they'll be fine. They'll probably end up winning like 92 games and yeah. in wildcard games. 92 games is a huge disappointment. Exactly. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm looking at their roster now. He is the only one of the regular starters who has been a below-average hitter this year. I mean, that's really good. And if you think, well, maybe now he's going to be an above-average hitter, uh, you know, that helps. Obviously, like we said before, Nunez has been kind of terrible. Moreland's been hurt. Uh, Michael Chavis? Chavis? Yeah. We'll go with that. Uh, got off to a hot start. It's kind of come back to earth a little bit. So I still feel like they need some first-base help. But the most important takeaway here is that Jackie Bradley is going to be fine, people. That's <laughs> a, I hope. Uh, and if he is, just remember, I said so. Speaking of our favorite guys... Matt wants to talk about Luis Perdomo. Now, usually this comes up as a joke because we always kind of run across Luis Perdomo. There is actual Luis Perdomo news here. Maybe not news, but he's back in the big leagues, and he's pitching pretty well. He's pitching very well. Uh, in the month of June, he has 14.2, 14 and two-thirds innings pitched, one earned run allowed, uh, 19 strikeouts and three walks. I mean, nine strikeouts and three walks. Perhaps most interesting, that crazy Padres-Rockies series in Colorado last weekend, that four-game series, 
which set the record for most runs scored ever in a four game series. Ninety two runs combined were scored. That was that was pre humidor like nineteen ninety eight Coors Field happened. It's amazing that that record was not set in like nineteen ninety seven. But anyway, ninety two runs were scored in a four-game series in Coors Field, an MLB record for a four-game series. Luis Perdomo appeared in three of those games and did not allow a run. <laughs> he was the linchpin of that series to the Padres pitching staff. Five and a third innings, three scoreless outings. Um, in that, that ridiculous 14-13 game on Sunday, he came in in the second inning, pitched two and a third scoreless innings, and drove in a run. Um, What's actually kind of interesting uh, about Perdomo, which may be something, maybe nothing, he's actually throwing his sinker a lot less. He's going away from his sinker, throwing his slider more. Um, the sinker he was throwing 58% of the time in, in May. It's down to 49% of the ju- 49% in June. And he's really been dominating righties in a way that suggests that maybe he's found his calling as kind of like a, a reliever who can be a dominant rookie. Um, he's holding uh, righties to a 525 uh, OPS against with 18 strikeouts and four walks this year. He's throwing the slider to them 43, 43% of the time. It was below 32% of the time last year. So it seems like he's really focusing on that slider, which had been a swing and miss pitch for him in his career, dominating against righties. There are only three pitchers this year who have thrown at least five innings pitched at Coors Field and not allowed a run. They are Max Reed, Cole Hamels, and Luis Perdomo. That is definitely a trio of names. <laughs> Three people who have never been in my kitchen. Um, but also, um, what's, <laughs> I was looking at that series, because that series was wild, I got into a real uh, Coors Field wormhole, and I, I kind of want to share some, some things that I found. Um, perhaps uh, the Padres should not be letting Eric Lauer pitch at uh, oh, Coors no. Field anymore. Know where this is going. <laughs> Eric Lauer in two starts at Coors Field this year, 5.2 innings pitched. 18 hits, 13 runs, allowing a 529, 579, 765 line against. That is a 20.65 ERA. So it had me wondering, what is the highest ERA by a pitcher in a single season at Coors Field, minimum five innings pitch? Now, granted, Lauer could get another opportunity to pitch there this year, but most likely my guess is the Padres will not allow that to happen. The record, of course, Eric Lauer is second. He is the second highest ERA right now for a pitcher a visiting pitcher in Coors Field in a season. The highest? Well, that would be the still active Oliver Perez, who in 2006 had a 28.8 ERA. 28.8. In, 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 in two starts in Coors Field in 2006. Oliver Perez, by the way, this season has 27 strikeouts and three walks for the Indians. I cannot wrap my mind around this. In 2010, Oliver Perez had more walks than strikeouts. He had a strikeout walk ratio below one. This year, his strikeout walk ratio is nine. Talk about a guy who has turned his career around I, in a way that is unimaginable. I just realized Oliver Perez is going to be on the Dodgers in a month, <laughs> you know, or somebody like that. Yeah, speaking of guys who will probably be on another team come August. Anyway, um, Coors Field, always good for some weirdness. Finally, we introduced a new StatCast metric last week uh, called Jump, and then we didn't do a podcast because Matt was on vacation and I was traveling, and I feel like we should at least talk about it because it's something we've been working pretty hard on. When we first rolled out StatCast all those years ago, there were some uh, some metrics you might have heard of called route efficiency and first step and all this stuff that was very well-intentioned, and it just didn't really work you know, for a lot of reasons. There wasn't enough separation, uh, so we kind of pulled them back and we decided we would rethink 
how it's all going to work. And so what we've come up with is this idea of measuring the best jumps. And the, what, what a jump is defined as is uh, it's in distance, right? So it's measured as the most distance covered in the first three seconds in the right direction. And you can break that down, as I will show you momentarily, into reaction and burst and route. And it's really cool because a lot of times, you know, we've had these great looking plays and you know, low catch probabilities and the speed just isn't there. The guy's not running that hard and we never really have a good way to explain why that is. Well, that's what jump hopefully is going to help us do. So let me uh, work backwards here and give you a good example. On Sunday night baseball, Dodgers Cubs, Dodgers are up 3-2, two men on, two outs in the ninth inning. Javi Baez comes up lines a 98 mile an hour low line drive to center field. Alex Verdugo runs up, makes a nice diving catch, 30% catch probabilities. That's a four-star play. It's really good. He ends the game. His sprint speed on that play, 24.8 feet per second. Now, the league average is 27. That's not super impressive, but it also wasn't the kind of play where you know he needed to run a great deal of distance at top speed to get to. That kind of play was all about jump, and when we looked at the numbers for that play, in the first three seconds, he ran nine and a half feet above average in the right direction. So the average outfielder was nine and a half feet further away from that ball. That means not only does that guy not dive for it, he doesn't even bother. He just pulls up and lets it bounce in front of him for a single. So that's cool. That's that's the whole point here is that if you are a good outfielder and you get great jumps, a lot of times you don't even need to dive, right? This I don't want to say this metric was made for Ender and Ciarte, but it was kind of made for Ender and Ciarte. And uh, you should really hopefully go read the article I wrote on it because there's lots of good quotes from guys like you know, Ciarte saying he works on his first step a lot and Joe Madden from the Cubs saying it's really, he thinks it's more important what guys do uh, in the first second than the last second. Like it's, it's setting themselves up uh, for success without having to dive, uh, except for Jackie Bradley, who does literally the opposite in ways I'll get to in a second. So just first quickly explaining uh, what some of the numbers look like. Uh, the most uh, or the best jump above average this year is tied actually to Tampa Bay outfielders, Guillermo Heredia and Kevin Kiermaier. Well, that makes sense. Uh, they get an average of three feet higher than average in the right direction. And, you know, if that doesn't sound like a lot, the guys at the bottom are minus four feet, minus five feet. So now we're talking about differences of like six or seven feet. This is the difference, not just between uh, making the catch and not, but of diving forward and not even bothering. Right. So that makes a lot of sense so far. You know, when I'm looking at, when I'm looking at the leaderboards and looking at the bottom, um, the bottom in some ways is, is more interesting, is as interesting as the top. Um, and one name jumps out at me for being towards the bottom is, is it Christian Yelich? It's Christian okay. Yelich. Because at the bottom so, is like Melky Cabrera, Dominguez Santana, Jesse Winker, Christian Stewart, Christian Yelich? Yeah. Jose Martinez, Jorge Soler. Right. Like all those names make sense. And then Yelich, you're kind of like, huh? So I, I saw that too. And my first reaction was, oh, that's weird. I need to go make sure that that's right. And I went and I watched a whole bunch of his plays and I, I actually buy it. I don't think he's a bad outfielder. I, he just did not seem like a very uh, aggressive one. You know, he, he kind of holds back. He, he seems... Um, worried about letting the ball get past him so i don't want to say he doesn't try because that's not right but he's just he's uh you know a little passive about it i guess is the way i would say but you're right um but what's cool about it is if um so let's for example if i look at last year's leaders i really like the top of this list because it's a combination of freak athletes right so like harrison bader was number two last year that makes sense harrison bader uh, is fast at everything uh ender Ciarte was number one that makes sense manny margot is number four very fast Corey Dickerson, number three, he won a gold glove last year. This is why. He's not actually that fast. Uh, Cody Bellinger, number five, because there's another thing Cody Bellinger has to be good at. It's that. So that's what jump is. And then that's probably the number 
we're going to go with mostly like in articles and videos and everything because I don't want to throw too much at everybody. I should also point out, by the way, uh, all of these numbers only apply to plays with a 90% catch probability and harder, two plus star plays, because if it's a very easy 99% play, you probably don't care about your route. It doesn't really matter. You're generally standing there watching the ball come. So uh, a couple of interesting stories that come of this. Uh, I broke it down to uh, well, not I, like Tom Tango and, and Darren Willman and everybody who worked on this, Jason Bernard, we broke this down into sub-sub-components. Reaction is feet covered in the first one and a half seconds. Burst, you can think of it like acceleration, is the next one and a half seconds. And route is the whole three seconds just comparing the uh, most direct path with your actual path, okay? So reaction, I'm looking at last year uh, right now, is cool. Jackie Bradley has the best reaction in baseball, and we're trying to report these all as verse average uh, for context reasons. So last year, he had a reaction of plus 2.7 feet. So that's in the first second and a half. Nobody has better reactions than Jackie Bradley. Hold that thought, because we're going to get back to that. Um, in is up there. Carlos Gonzalez, that makes sense, because he's really good at making these quick reaction plays. Uh, Ramon Laureano is on that list. Hold that thought. The next one is burst, and this one actually correlates pretty well with just flat out speed harrison bader travis jankowski adam engel jake marisnik acceleration being fast that makes sense okay route andrew mccutcheon had the best route in baseball at 1.2 feet above average jackie bradley minus 2.3 feet for route jackie bradley runs the least direct routes in baseball now you may think to yourself well, that's bad, and I don't know that it is because of two reasons. One, I think that sets him up to make all of those spectacular-looking plays, whereas if you're you know, in Ciarte and you just kind of get there, you don't have to dive, but if you're Jackie Bradley and you've taken it less of a direct route, maybe you do. So I thought that was interesting, and then I went and I did some Googling. Jackie Bradley talked to The Athletic last year, uh, talked to Chad Jennings, and what he said was, I'd say the last few feet are the most important because that's when you have to make your small little adjustments. If you're thinking about making those adjustments earlier on in the route, then you might not even have the opportunity to catch it because you won't get back there in time. So maybe it's not a bad route is the right way to think of it. Uh, maybe it's just a different way to have a route. Either way, when I saw that, I was really happy because it gave me a lot of confidence that this thing is actually measuring what we hope it is because he's out there saying he's not trying to do it. And then he shows up terribly in the number. That made me so happy. Uh, and then Andrew McCutcheon, by the way, uh, was the best route runner in baseball last year. Andrew McCutcheon was an all-state high school wide receiver in football. When he was, Does when not he was surprise young, me. Which is great. Uh, and we actually had Todd Zalecki uh, for uh, phillies.com ask him about it. And he basically said, oh, yeah, football wide receiver. Like, that makes a ton of sense. So anyway, uh, I really encourage you to, to go read the article. Check it out at Baseball Savant. The leaderboards are cool, but I, I really think what's more interesting are the year-by-year uh, -year progression and stories you can tell. You may remember last year we talked a lot about how Mike Trout decided he was going to be a better outfielder, and then he was. We didn't have the numbers at the time to say it, but if you look at it, his burst actually improved year-by-year, -year, and so his jump did as well. We didn't have these numbers at the time, but they would have told the story he was trying to tell us, which I think is really cool. And stuff like this I'm, I'm finding more fascinating as, as time goes on because, you know, like like a lot of um, like many analytically inclined fans right now, I'm uh, in the midst of reading the um, the MVP machine by Ben Lindbergh and uh, Travis Sawcheck. I'm really enjoying it, and it makes you rethink all of these things that we've thought about for so long in terms of like how players can get better and how they can improve themselves. And now we have you know this is just the, the data that, that you know um, our team has created, but teams have their own you know variations variations of these of these metrics and other ways that they can train players they can help Mike Trout get better say hey here like 
here are drills you can do to improve your burst. Or here are things that, hey, we, we see the data is telling us that you're doing a really good job, you know, going back into your left, but coming inside, to, going forward to your right, you're not doing as well. So let's really work on that. And I think for a long time, sort of like the analytic orthodoxy was essentially, okay, players are sort of this. They have a baseline level, and they will all perform essentially within like a standard deviation of that level and probably not improve as their career goes on. It'll probably, if anything, they'll probably just like, you know, decline with age. But we're seeing now because of the amount of data that players and teams have, especially involved with player tracking, you can make like tangible changes to the player that you are. And, you know, outfield defense is like a perfect example of, you know, we talk about Mike Trout saying, I'm going to become a better defender where you can actually do it and measure it. Yeah. I'm, I'm oftentimes so much more interested in the why. You know, like, why is someone a great outfielder? Is he fast? Does he have great routes? Does he have great reactions? And hopefully this will allow us to tell those stories uh, a little bit better. So we have Jump Out at Baseball Savant. Please go uh, take a look at it. We recently put out Pitch Movement at Baseball Savant. Next on the list, Infield Defense. We are finally getting to it. We're very excited about that. Uh, Hopefully coming later on this season. This is our show for this week. This is the MLB.com StatCast Podcast. Thanks for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend or do something a little more epic? And conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai. There's joy in every journey.